A former officer grapples with the reality of our broken police culture. And I quote, Daniel Reinhardt spent 24 years as a police officer near Cleveland, Ohio in the States. He was long unaware of the ways the culture of the police department was shaping him, but gradually through his own experiences as a police officer and through the mentorship of black Christians in his life, his eyes were opened to a difficult truth. Police brutality against racial minorities was endemic to the culture of the system itself. End of quote. And Daniel Reinhardt is my very special guest this time on the God Story podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Siddle. Daniel's new book from IVP America is called Rethinking the Police, An Officer's Confession and the Pathway to Reform. Now, Daniel did indeed serve as police officer for 24 years. After retiring from the police force, he was assistant professor at the Heart of Texas Foundation College of Ministry at the Memorial Unit, a prison in Rosharan, Texas. Currently, he's associate director of student life and applied ministry at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, Daniel joins me now from the States. Daniel, hi. Hi, Brent. Thanks for having me. Oh, look, this is a, a, a gritty and really fascinating read, this one. Um, what made you want to become a policeman? Did you want to become a policeman? Yeah, uh, so I was really proud to be a policeman, but it was not like my lifelong dream. I got out of the military. I had a wife and children, and I needed a job. And so I started taking civil service tests in the city that I was born and raised in. And the first opportunity I got was a policeman, and I, I took the job. You write, for decades I refused to accept what was painfully obvious for so many. Police brutality against minorities is not an issue of a few isolated and disconnected incidents, but a systemic condition of a compromised institution, end of quote. Now, why was it so difficult for you to accept this or to come to terms with this? Well, because you're, once you're indoctrinated into the police culture and you're in the center of that and you're siloed and surrounded by police officers and you're really just... Um, you're only hearing one side of a story. You're only seeing one perspective. So I was just really blind to the idea and I couldn't see it because I couldn't step outside that context to see what others saw. You grew up in a racially diverse community too, didn't you? I did. Mm. Uh, you write that the police academy you attended indoctrinated you into a particular culture and you've just said as much uh, to me. What was that culture and how do you think it indoctrinated you? Well, it starts in the police academy. So you're hired and, you know, you want to do a good job. You want to learn what you need to learn. And you go to the police academy, which is going to be taught by police officers. And so you're being trained in use of force and you're being trained in firearms and the laws, but it's being taught by cops and they tell their stories and they share their lives. So you already start to pick up the way they speak, the way they act, and you're looking to be part of the club, so to speak. And so it starts there, even in that four months, you're learning the customs, you're surrounded by police officers. And in that four months, you start to absorb it and it never ends. You get back to your police department and then you're fully immersed in it. And I was 22 years old. I don't know if I, I certainly didn't understand it in the way that I understand it now, because it's just so organic for you. It's just an experience. Everyone's going through it. And I, you know, I didn't really think critically about it. Yeah. What sort of things do they teach you? I mean, what? how do they deal with the whole business of, of an officer being attacked, for example? Well, I mean, you go to the police academy and, and you're going to watch like all these video. And I went a long time ago, so it might have changed somewhat since then. But you're going to watch all these videos of police officers being gunned down and the dangers of policing. And you're taught to protect your life. And that's important. You need to learn that. But 
I don't think you we you ever address sort of the mindset that that can instill. And I think the us versus them mentality that's in police against, uh, particularly in uh, urban communities where there's high crime, it's already starting to develop because I think it starts to bring you into a soldier's mentality, so to speak. And again, officers have to protect their lives. That is part of the job. But I didn't think critically how it was affecting me in the way that I would then deal with people or see people. Yes, I'm just wondering, at what point, uh, though, are you taught to, if I can put it crudely, pull the trigger? Oh, that's our, I mean, firearms training is, it's designed to do one thing. Um, although we wouldn't phrase shoot to kill, but you shoot center mass. Yeah. And you shoot till the threat stops. And that's, I guess, could be a euphemism for, for, for shooting to kill. If you're going to kill somebody, if you shoot them in the chest. So you do things like shoot twice to the chest, once to the head. And that's to stop the threat. But that's also synonymous with you're going to kill somebody if you do that. So it begins immediately when you start your firearms training. Mm. Okay, well, we're going to come on and deal with the incident that changed your mind, really. It was, this, was, this was just fascinating. Uh, what were some of your experiences in policing in Ohio? And how brutal was it? it, it how brutal was the... Uh, the experiences, the, like, the, that you, the things you faced, yeah. Uh, well, I, okay, so I was a, a new policeman, and uh, you, I'm riding with an officer who probably had like 15 years on. Wonderful guy. He's a gentleman. And, you know, you're in the car now. You're out of the academy. You're in the car with him. And this is just a shadowing phase. So for two weeks, I'm just watching him. What well, was like the first day we went to a domestic violence call? And we show up in this house, and everybody's just screaming. And it's complete chaos. And some woman, a younger woman, is holding a baby and screaming and yelling at him and, and pointing her finger in his face. And he tells me, take the baby. So I remember taking the baby from her and he went to place her under arrest for, you know, uh, obstructing justice because he couldn't investigate. And she begins to fight with him and he throws her on the floor. I understood that we used force. And I'm not saying that he used excessive force, actually, in that incident. But it was a shock to see a man throw a woman on the floor. And so he cuffs her up and, and then we end up arresting her and getting to the bottom of what happened. And she had instigated the whole thing. And it, but to me, this is like overwhelming to him. This is just another day. Yeah, yeah this is going to happen multiple. He's he's seen things like this multiple times. And I remember we got in the car and he could tell I was just shocked at like what happened. And he said, if women come at you like men, you have to treat them like men. Okay, well, that's one philosophy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I don't think he was trying to communicate that he wanted to hurt her. No, no. I understand he's raised up. He's done 15 years in this community where people are violent. People will try to hurt you. And this is before, uh, this is just slightly after Rodney King. So there were some changes. But the police department that I was on was known for its aggressive and sadly brutal policing. Yeah, I want to come on and talk about how things change after Rodney King, if I may. But first, another quote. I'm forever quoting um, quotes, words and throwing words back at my authors. But you write, on one occasion, I witnessed an officer shot and later stood less than 50 feet away as two officers killed the suspect. This was my new normal. Now, how does this ever become a normal for police in the States? How does it become a normal? Yeah. Because you're going to see these things repeatedly. Um, I just told somebody a story today. Uh, one of the guys, I, I after five years on the police force, 
I had seen so many people shot, been on the scenes of so many murders, had been attacked, had been shot at, had seen somebody killed. And it just keeps coming. It keeps coming. And and, and everybody that you're around has seen the same thing. Mm, yeah. They're part of it. And so I had about five years on and they made me a training officer. And I have a rookie now, but I hadn't seen, I, I didn't understand how calloused I had become and how normal this was to me. And that night we had a guy shot in the head and we arrive on scene and, you know, you can imagine what someone shot in the head looks like. And I'm explaining to him what looks like happened to him and what we need to do because it's just business to me. Mm, and I yeah. looked at his face and I saw the shock. And that's when I realized I used to be like that. So the answer to your question is when you experience those things, it's just going to do that to you. Yeah. That's that's how, how you have to respond to survive. Yeah. Um, what was the experience that forced you to reckon with the power you possessed? Because this is an extraordinary story that you tell in the book. Yeah. Despite all the, the, the violence I had seen, you know, street violence, uh, people towards each other, I never really had to hurt anybody. I was um, fortunate enough that the force I had to use was mostly just wrestling people down. And uh, um, I was a high school wrestler and pretty good at it. So that really helped. That skill really came in handy. But one night I went to a domestic violence call. You know, this is in the book. And this one was unique because the screaming was so intense that this dispatchers could hear the screaming from across the street coming through the phone from the people who were reporting it. And I happened to be very close to this res residence and my backup officer couldn't get to me because he was cut off by a train. So I know I'm coming alone. And I and I walk up the steps to this, uh, you know, impoverished neighborhood and pe people are out everywhere because the scream screaming so loud. It's nighttime. I hear it and I walk up there alone. No, I, I'm on my own. And uh, what I what I look in and see is this man over this woman. And he happened to be a young African-American gentleman. and they're in a conflict and I immediately perceive that he's stabbing her, which would explain the screaming. It all makes sense to me. So I holster my gun and I, I pointed at, him. in fact, I walked in with the gun out because of the screaming and I tell him to turn around to stop. And, and he turns and I begin to yell, get on the ground, get on the ground. Now we're only, you know, maybe 10 feet apart. And he becomes, he just immediately walks at me very quickly. And I'm trying to see the knife. And I can't see it because it's dark. I didn't have my flashlight out. I didn't have time to pull the flashlight out. I didn't have time to go anywhere. You know, this is happening within a second or two. So I took the slack out of the trigger to shoot him center mass as I'd been trained because if someone attacks you with a knife, that's the defense. For whatever reason, I didn't pull the trigger that night and I just tried to grab his wrist, which probably would not work if he was, you know, had a knife and was intention. uh intending to kill me. He gives me no resistance. He lets me put him in handcuffs. I begin to look for the knife. There was never a knife. And so I say to him, why didn't you get on the ground when I told you to? And he said, I I'm tired of her. I came out so you could take me to jail. And even at that point, it's starting to process in my mind, like, oh, I almost killed this guy who committed a misdemeanor, who didn't want to hurt me at all. And I'm walking him to the car. And then I put him in the back of the car because he's under arrest. And my hand started shaking and it wasn't because it was just like a, a, a visceral gut reaction to this. And not because I thought he was that my life was in danger. I had been in those situations before. So I realized I almost killed this guy and I would have been wrong in doing so. 
Yes. And so that was the time it set in my mind the power yeah. that I carried every day. Yeah. And the choice you made that night, I presume, was inconsistent with your training. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Okay, can we come on and deal with the um, a bit of the history of policing from the book? Because this was this really interested me. I knew very little about this. How was policing formed by a Christian worldview with Robert Peel? Yeah, so he he's uh, reacting to British evangelicals at the time who were critical of, of of the way the police were dealing with people. So he drafts nine principles, and if you read those principles, they're in the book. I have them footnoted. You can really see the Christian worldview just coming through because he was a Christian. And he's basing policing on peacekeeping and less on enforcement. And uh, he focuses on the need to be one with the people. He focuses in on keeping the peace as the primary mission. He focuses in on how coercive force can be lessened through relationship and community trust and police legitimacy. And he, he's so right, by the way. And a lot of what my book simply does is bring us back to the foundations in Peel. It doesn't really do much more than that sometimes, I don't think. But quickly, American police drift away from this foundation, even though that's what we adopt. We use his uh, nine principles and his foundation for modern policing to start police departments in the big cities in the United States. They quickly moved away from that foundation, I think today are far away from that foundation. Yes, and there was a difference, wasn't there? Because you write about the, um, well, uh, I'll ask the question, how were the police tools in the hands of politicians in the States? This was the difference, wasn't it? Yeah, this is the huge difference. So where Great Britain is gonna have, you know, a national police force, we have municipalities run by local politicians. And this is just prior to um, prohibition. So they're being handled to local politicians who are corrupt. The corruption worsens in the prohibition era. And so now the police are just tools in the hands of these corrupt politicians. And um, at this point, they're known for being by the 1920s and by the 1920s, they're described as thoroughly corrupt and completely brutal. How did the 1960s shock and even change police? Well, the radical changes in the United States that took place through the civil <clears throat> rights movements. And um, I think the new left had a little bit to do this, too. Uh, because these peaceful protests, unfortunately, resulted in violence. But so the country's changing so fast. You have the political climate, which is turbulent, all the assassinations. And in the middle of this, you have the civil rights movement and you have police departments that have basically been able to, you know, hide their brutality uh, from the public. It takes place in urban ghettos where most people can't see. But as these peaceful protests took place, people witnessed police brutality because that was how they put an end to protests. This was their mode of operation, but most people hadn't seen it. So police brutality goes from alleys and urban ghettos into the living rooms of America. And so policing isn't ready for the radical changes in America. They they haven't kept up with uh, just policing and being what I think the public expected them to be. And they get exposed largely through uh, the riots and the and the civil disturbances that took place that everybody was privy to because now it's on the television. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of television, let's fast forward to the early 90s and the, the arrest of Rodney King. How did that, 1991 wasn't it, I think, the Rodney King incident, how did, that, yeah, how did that bring the whole issue of police brutality to the fore again? Yeah, because you got to think this is before camera phones, this is before video. So now we have this video 
Uh, and I was in high school when I saw when I saw this video as and everybody. Uh, uh, I think this was the perception of the general public was the police just beat this guy with batons over and over and over. But what Rodney King exposed was they their performance, the LAPD's performance, for lack of a better word, against Rodney King aligned with their policies and procedures. That was the terrifying part. And so that changed the police world when they could make a legitimate argument and said, we did exactly what we were trained according to the protocols you said. And by the way, they did. Hmm. Uh, you know, you think just uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you carry on. Oh, yeah. You would think, you know, most people would say, well, wouldn't just a humane consideration keep you from doing that? But that's where the culture comes in and the training. But because it met the standards that they had set, policing begins to change because now America's involved and, and uh, there's there's changes in use of force. Continuums came about. This is about when I come on as a policeman in the mid 90s in the wake of all of these changes. Even though this happens in L.A., I'm feeling it all the way in the Cleveland area in Ohio. Yeah. By the way, how did your colleagues in the police force view the arrest of Rodney King? So they're understood there. And I don't even know if this was true, but I had heard this story so many times. They were so focused on the fact that the LAPD could have intercepted the video. And if the video would have never got out, we'd never be dealing with these changes. They also completely saw the situation as, hey, if Rodney King wasn't a criminal and didn't run from the police, none of that would have happened. And what they were upset about were the changes that were coming in use of force. And so they saw this as this failure by the LAPD to contain this has now ruined it for everybody. Yeah, and um, you write about some of the changes uh, that took place. How and when could police use force in the States, and how did that change after the Rodney King incident? Yeah, so uh, policy and procedures in policing, and some of this was probably in place before Rodney King, but now everybody's getting in line. Use of force continuums are now in police uh, policies and procedures where you have to think about the resistance of the, the, the person resisting or the suspect. And then you have to have a reasonable response to that, um, to their resistance. So you couldn't, in, in the old days, for lack of a better description, when someone resisted, they were likely to get hit in the head with a night club, with a, a billy club. Where now, if you were going to strike somebody in the head with a billy club, that's a deadly force application. So you would have to be able to articulate that the person posed a serious, serious threat of uh, physical harm to you or death before you could do such a thing. So now they had to think critically and use force somewhat humanely according to these policies and procedures. Yes, and you're right that the officers, some of the officers didn't like it, and they used to switch to using a torch instead of an expandable baton. Yeah, and this is the power of the police culture, because the police culture and, and again, this isn't all the officers. This is kind of the lowest common denominator within the police culture. But they could push back against the changes. And the way they did that was to carry heavy flashlights and use those as as the old billy club rather than the baton to still strike people in the head and write in police reports that the person ducked, but they had and they were aiming for their shoulder. So nothing how, had really changed. Yeah, how widespread is that? You know, I I know it took place. I know it took place with some officers. Um, I'd like to think it wasn't the majority. Um, and each police department is different. And, and that being said, there's just men of integrity everywhere that don't do things like this. Oh, sure. Uh, but 
let's put it this way. It wasn't something that was going to get investigated. And how many times can you see the same thing in a police report by the same guy? Yes. And of course, um, since then, we've had uh, the murder of George Floyd and Ty Nichols. And how did those incidents bring the whole crisis to a, to a head, do you think? Yeah, I think before you even get to that, you have to get to Michael Brown in 2014. There's a significant shift with that case. And um, being in a community that uh, had a large concentration of African-Americans, I could feel the tension. It was palpable after Michael Brown's death. And there's a lot of uh, Christian people in the African-American communities, uh, particularly older Christians, that have you know, a, a love and respect for the police, but they're also in the community and they hear the voices and they would come up to me and say, be careful out there because I hear people in the streets talking. It's getting crazy. So they they were communicating the, the, the rage and the anger and kind of this is just the final straw. So there was a big shift. And then when George Floyd happens, that was such an egregious incident that uh, I can't remember if I say this in the book, but I've said it before. That if someone would have told me that was going to happen and be videotaped, I would have said it's impossible because it would take a person that is completely malicious and just utterly stupid to do such a thing. And I just don't think an officer could have those two qualities in one person. In other words, there could be someone that malicious, but they wouldn't be foolish enough to do it on camera. And there could be somebody that foolish, but not that malicious. Well, I'd be wrong. When I watched that, I was just shocked. At at, uh, at the incident, as so many people were. And I, I think that was the final straw for so many people and why we had civil rest all over the country. Yes. OK. Um, now, uh, the next part of your book, you go on to uh, some proposals for reform. And I loved all this. How do you propose reforming leadership in the police? And what are some of the principles of servant leadership you outline in the book? Yeah, so... In order to change the police, because I've sort of explained how external changes have come, like the use of force continuums, but nothing really changes substantially. That's because the police culture can push back against the formal changes. And what I identify in the police culture is this tendency towards social distance, dehumanization and abuse. That is a, 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 a thriving like ethos underground in the in policing. The leadership tends to contribute to that tendency. So the reason that I go to leadership to change policing, because leadership has to change the culture. So leadership has to change. And it has to change from the toxic leadership, top-down style, positional power, the reliance on coercive power that we see in policing to a servant leadership style that's focused on serving people, that's judicious use of power, peacekeeping, and I think the law enforcement leadership can model and change the mission of the police and change the culture of the police. Yeah. What would servant shepherd, I think you use both the terms, don't you? Servant and shepherd mm -hmm. leadership. Servant what, shepherd. Yeah, I love that. What, what would that look like in the police? Right. So you have servant leadership characteristics that come from Robert Greenleaf. And it's it's been criticized as being weak. And that's where the pastoral shepherding component comes in. So a shepherd is a, a protector, and he's also a provider. And under that protection function, we think of Christian leadership. These are leaders who hold people accountable. But they're also servant leaders in that they're 
um, invested in developing the character of the officer. So you have this moral standard leader who's developing officers, holding them accountable, encouraging, building them up. So it's personal. It's not just top-down toxic ruling. And the idea is, same as pastoral leadership, that a leader changes somebody by impacting with their character, with who they are. So the servant shepherd model is a model of leadership where police leaders impact them with their character and their ethics and who they are and reciprocate those qualities in officers. And lead by so example. Eternal change. Yes, and presumably lead by example. Um, like, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and how did you personally try to implement this during your time in the police? Because you tell some a delightful story about a, a um, Thanksgiving turkey. Oh well, so I, I mean, I understood. I got to see as a Christian, I got to see the juxtaposition between I had a very good pastor that was a strong leader, and then kind of the toxic police leaders. And so I understood, you know, the idea of loving people, serving people, patience. But I also was indoctrinated into policing and to think that it wouldn't affect me uh, it was obviously pretty foolish. But I had a, a young Christian in my unit and we got these turkeys to give to people. And I immediately started thinking about who we're going to give turkeys to these wonderful people because we were working in a housing project that I liked. And immediately went to wanting to give it to basically the most contentious person we had there. And that's the idea that and I was like, he's so right. And that his heart was to be above this, to, to love people when he, he could. And I mean, because they knew we were going to keep the, we were going to enforce the law. We weren't going to let, you know, havoc reign. But I had lost my perspective on what real leadership and leading by example was. And he had to remind me. Yes, you write a lot about um, community policing, don't you? And I think you um, you contrast community policing with an intelligence-led zero-tolerance policing. Now, how what's intelligence-led zero-tolerance policing, and how does it differ from the older community policing model? Yeah, great question. So intelligence-led policing is basically taking statistics on crime and mapping them. This is maybe a little oversimplified, but... So what you're able to do is look at your crime statistics, create a map that show you where the crime areas are. So it purports to be an objective crime analysis, and it is. However, when you look at that map and you just see hotspots, hotspots would be high crime areas, you can tend to lose sight that those aren't just high crime areas. Those are neighborhoods full of people and children and women and people you're called to serve. And it's easy to lose track on that. Now, you couple that with the police culture that has the tendency to dehumanize, right? So then intelligence-led policing says, here's your problem based on the statistics. How's that culture going to solve it? Well, the way we solve it is usually through the methodology of zero-tolerance policing, which uses those statistics, that area, to justify going in there and enforcing everything. And the idea with zero-tolerance, when it's coupled with intelligence-led policing, is that if we enforce the small things, we're deter the greater crimes. So you come in and you cite people for jaywalking, no turn signal, littering, and any violation you can think of that doesn't take place anywhere else. But the sad part is, what do you think those areas look like demographically? Mm-hmm. They end up being minority areas. So when a, a African-American person says, hey, you don't want to drive and be black because you'll get stopped. Although policing would say, no, it has to do with intelligence-led zero tolerance. At the end of the day, you're getting stopped for things that you would never get stopped for in black neighborhoods, where yeah. in white neighborhoods, it's not going to happen. Yes. Okay. So community policing. How, how does community policing work then work 
with the servant shepherd model because presumably I mean when you say community policing to me I think of the old policing in New Zealand that we used to have where we had police walking around our neighborhoods yeah talking to people over their garden fences saying how are you <laughs> how's things going yeah. sort of thing yes so when, so law enforcement drifts from peacekeeping to enforcement that's the name law enforcement right but where has that gotten us we haven't been able to enforce our way to peace in our communities so getting back to the centrality of of peacekeeping as our mission then comes in community policing which is which is concerned with building relationships with people partnering with the community to solve underlying problems to crime and disorder and um what are you doing you're keeping the peace through cooperation and collaboration with the public and then you get the people then you get the people behind you to trust you now that's going to be a slow process maybe because I would say we've built up tension through zero tolerance policing and anyone who tries to bring in, and this is where I've been critical of law enforcement leaders who say, well, we have community policing, but we do zero tolerance. That's the antithesis. How can you go in and hammer these communities and now they hate you and then show up and say, hey, we're here to do community policing. How can we help you solve problems? <laughs> You've become the enemy. <laughs> It'll never work. No. Okay, last question, Daniel. Oh, we could talk for hours. This has been fascinating. How can the police then invest in local communities? What what can we do? So the police, I think the first thing you have to do, and we're talking about urban communities, and I think Southern Seminary did a good job of this. You have to recognize the mistakes of the past. You have to come to the table and say, we haven't done everything right. We've been wrong. We want to change it. And I bring up Southern Seminary because they apologize for the past and you know the things they had done in in colonial slavery and then you can move on so the police have to say look we haven't handled this right we've done strategies that are wrong but we want to change it i think that that's the first step the second step is to bring stakeholders from the community particularly the african-american community pastors community leaders into your circles and say we want to solve these problems how do we do it? And you bring them on board. Now, that's a much slower process than just sending policemen in to stomp out problems, so to speak. But mm. if you bring in and you build cooperation, you'll build trust. And then you can maybe see the difference in communities when you go into in a community. Instead of zero tolerance, just hitting everybody with, with enforcement, you'll have people supporting you. And you'll be able to see that it's just the one or two percent in this community that are a problem. And the community will be behind you in catching those people because they trust you. But that might take some time. But the first step to your answer is recognizing the past, apologizing so you can move forward, connecting with community leaders, being very transparent on your strategies, how you want to clean it up, and building support so they go with you to do it. Ah, Daniel Reinhardt, fascinating discussion. Associate Director of Student Life and Applied Ministry at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Daniel, thank you so much. And the book from IVP, which... Um, if you're interested in the subject, and even if you just want something to uh, a, a book that's going to challenge you, get a copy of it because I found it absolutely fascinating. It's called Rethinking the Police, an Officer's Confession and the Pathway to Reform. And publisher is IVP, InterVarsity Press America. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor our podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. 
If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.